That was Pizzagate before there was Pizzagate. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 26th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, did you have a good weekend? I I did. I had a very good weekend, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what I did on this weekend in a second. <laughs> All right. Yeah, once I'm introduced, then we can start talking. Oh, sorry. No. That that voice no. you hear from his car in Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. You know, I don't like the conversation to get too far along the road before I've even been introduced. I don't mean to be a prima donna here. <laughs> no, you're not going to like this either because I'm going to talk about something that Neil and I did over the weekend that you 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 didn't, although you should at well, some point. That's fine. As long as I'm introduced, <laughs> you can talk about that. <laughs> well, we have talked before on the show about the very fun baseball dice game called MLB Showdown. Um, Neil and I have played this before. It's a blast. Neil figured out how to play it online since we can't play it in person. And we played a a very long game of it on Saturday. And it was a blast. It was actually nine innings took longer than a real nine inning game would take. Yeah. Amazingly. What did it take? Like five hours? How long did it take? Like four and a half. Yeah. It was crazy. It didn't make sense. Part of that was set up and some of it was like chatter. But it's like... Stratomatic principles? Like, how does this work? Yeah, roughly the same as Stratomatic, um, where you basically roll a die and uh, it's determined by, like, you know, the a table on the player's card, what happens. But there are these strategy cards also that you can use to... Uh, to alter the game. It's really fun. We did it on um, a combination of Discord and and Roll20, which is a site that really is primarily designed for playing like Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. But it basically, you can roll a dice and it's uh, it, it renders it in 3D and it kind of rolls around. So Sarah had a few agonizing moments where it looked like the die was going to land on a number that would have been great for her. And then it just tipped over toward, toward a, a bad number at the last second. You hate to see it. Wait, were 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 you certain teams? Yeah, I, I played as the Russians. We could spend a whole show on this. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> on today's show, we'll talk about the ongoing negotiations between Major League Baseball and its Players Association and what the two sides need to get done in time to restart the league. We'll take a look at Sunday's golf event and how the return of sports might be lining up with America's partisan divide. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Major League Baseball's owners and its Players Association are meeting today to discuss a revised plan for a 2020 season. There's a number of economic sticking points the two sides need to come to terms on, and the time to do so is rapidly running out, as ESPN's Jeff Passan laid out on SportsCenter. If Major League Baseball wants to come back to spring training 2.0 by the middle of June, Major League Baseball wants hot dogs and fireworks and everything on the 4th of July to include baseball then they need to get this thing done and get an agreement in place before the end of the month. And listen, maybe it can bleed a little bit into June, the first or the second day, but they understand because of the health and safety protocol that players are going to be showing up, you know, 72 hours early and getting tested for coronavirus and that players need to come from the Dominican Republic and Colombia and South Korea and all around the world to get back. So 
Uh, there's a lot of things that need to get done in a very limited amount of time to do them. We are recording this podcast on Tuesday morning, and the meeting between owners and players is set to begin at 1 p.m. So to borrow a phrase from our friends at NPR, things may have changed by the time you hear this. <laughs> but in any case, Neil, is Jeff Passan right that we're running out of time? Well, I mean, yes, to the extent uh, that they've talked about wanting to come back on July 4th or, you know, symbolically at least or, or sometime around early July that these things need to get ironed out now. Now, that's not, you know, that's kind of a self-imposed deadline. And they've actually been kind of conscious not to put a hard deadline on things because they wanted the wiggle room. Uh, and I think Jeff writes about this in one of his latest stories about it, where it's like uh, things look like they're at an impasse on June 30th at midnight or something like that. And they uh, they want to be able to extend it to be able to iron out a deal over the next few days. They want to give themselves the freedom to do that. But if we're talking about generalities of when the season might start and that being early July, then they're going to have to come to an agreement probably in the next week or so. That seems just what with what we know about the the sticking points between them. That seems hard. That's it seems tricky to me that they would come that they would figure out what they want to do in just one week. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it take forever for these CBA negotiations to kind of play out. Uh, and so the idea of doing maybe not a full CBA, but, you know, kind of an abbreviated special case version of that, that will probably also leave precedents that each side can point to in the next CBA negotiation, which I believe is after the 2021 season. Uh, yeah, it seems like it'll be kind of a, a rushed process to get it done. But then at the same time, I mean, these are questions that if you want to be able to restart baseball this summer uh, are going to have to be answered in some way, shape or form. So as things stand right now, Jeff, what is the biggest impasse between the league and the players? It seems to come down to this 50-50 revenue sharing system, which is it's just a hard pill to swallow, I think, for Major League Baseball's players. Because, you know, unlike other leagues, they never really had or never had, uh, you know, revenue sharing system, which sort of, I, I think that, you know, for a couple of reasons, for uh or the reason, the, uh, let me start over, three, two, one. The players are unhappy about this for a couple reasons. One, I think in their minds, they already feel like they're taking a huge pay cut um, by prorating their salaries for half a season. The second thing is that they're the ones taking all the risk. So they're, not, you know, in terms of the COVID and all this and, and the, uh, the strain that'll put on them and their families and all that. So they don't feel like they should take much more of a, a pay cut. And this revenue sharing system is is obviously like raising a lot of red flags. For starters, I think they don't really trust the MLB's math on what revenue is. You know, the money comes in from a million different sources. I think it also sort of, there's a fear that it could lead a slippery slope into a salary cap, which they obviously don't want. But a lot of it, I think, just comes down to what that revenue is and, and you know, trusting each one of these teams math on that revenue is, is what I can read from it, um, which obviously, you know, hasn't been done before. I think it was Scott Boris said, you don't privatize the gains and socialize the losses, which is an interesting quote, <laughs> meaning that. Uh, this is the year they're going to make the least amount of revenue. And now we finally get some revenue sharing. But I think there's also, you know, on, on the owner side, they do have to negotiate this next CBA. So I do think they don't want to push too hard. This is the players here, because obviously this can bite them 
um, when that deal comes up. Yeah. So MLB is saying that paying players, their prorated salaries in an 82 game season without any fans, they would still lose more than $4 billion. Yeah. So that was leaked to the AP. And obviously that math can be scrutinized. In Fangraphs, if you want to read a very good story, a very detailed story about MLB revenue, um, our friends at Fangraphs put that together nicely. And, And obviously that number seems to have been pulled down a thin air and is pretty dubious. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't really make any sense at all. And I actually did a little um, math, uh, a little back of the napkin math from uh, the numbers at Forbes where they break out revenue, gate receipts, player expenses, all of that. And so last year, MLB had an operating income of $1.2 billion, meaning the, basically they made a $1.2 billion profit according to this uh, estimate. And they had $9.9 billion of revenue, of which $2.8 billion were from gate receipts. And we can kind of estimate that maybe around $1.7 billion of that came from concessions, parking, uh, you know, merchandise sales at the ballpark, et cetera. So you're talking about, you know, if you add those two numbers together, those are gone. Uh, and that's about uh, $4.5 billion that's out the window. Okay, fine. Out of $9.9 billion in total revenue. But they still made $1.7 billion in national TV, uh, licensing and sponsorships about $1.5 billion. Local TV was $2.2 billion, and that might get cut into a little bit, uh, especially when you consider that, some, first of all, they'll be airing half the games that they would normally. And then uh, a lot of these teams own a stake in their regional sports networks. So if those regional sports networks don't have, um, you know, the ratings that they would usually have or their advertising revenue is down, teams will be on the hook for that uh, in a way that they wouldn't be for the national TV revenue, which is sort of negotiated with these major networks beforehand. But even if you kind of make some assumptions about how much will be lost there and, and assume a half a season, they would make somewhere between three and a half and four billion dollars in revenue, and player expenses last year were four point six billion. So if you cut that in half, it's two point three billion. Then other expenses, say you cut that in half too, so it gets down to two billion. So this idea that they'll lose four billion dollars by paying the players half of their salaries just doesn't add up at all. But no. it is interesting to your point, Sarah, earlier about how they. Um, they, they didn't want revenue sharing with the players uh, in terms of having the, the money to the players be tied to a percentage of league revenue during the boom times of yeah. the past handful of years where things were going really well. Now, all of a sudden, they want that. And by the same token, I mean, the players probably would have wanted that in the past. And they've been so adamantly opposed to a salary cap. This, the, even the idea, the notion, the two words, salary cap, that uh, in some ways, I think they're, they're too averse to it. Because if you look at the NBA, NBA players, at least before this pandemic, we're doing great and they have salaries that are tied directly to league revenue too. So when the league signs an incredible TV deal with ESPN, they automatically get that money. It's just a question of which players, uh, you know, get the money and kind of divvying up their, their slice of the pie, but the pie gets larger. The players as a whole get more money. Whereas in, in MLB, it kind of relies on market forces. They end up making less money. Whereas if they had agreed to some kind of revenue sharing, which would probably include a salary cap, but also a salary floor like they have in the NBA, 
then they wouldn't really have to worry about these free agent freezes because at, at a certain point, the money has to come to them by some avenue or another. So it's kind of interesting, the opposition to a salary cap, just blanket opposition to it among the players. Well, so what do they, I mean, why are they so opposed to it? What do they stand to lose from that? Like even this kind of de facto salary cap with the 50-50 share? I think they want to still have the option of having these ever escalating uh, contracts that maybe outpace baseball revenue if there's a situation where, but that hasn't been true in a long time. You know, uh, team revenues were growing at a faster rate than player salaries uh, over the past decade, I believe. Uh, And so I don't know. Some of it also stems back to, I think, 1994. I know there aren't certainly no players left over from then. And and a lot of the the actors have changed um, uh, in terms of the players union and the MLB side of things. But there's still this acrimony. I mean, if you boil down the 1994 strike to anything, it was over the owner's attempt to try to put in a salary cap on Major League Baseball. And they lost the World Series. They lost a half a season uh, or more uh, to, to that. So I think there's still like, that still hangs over their head uh, and and in the back of their mind. If they do, if there is a second wave or something changes, obviously with the pandemic and you lose the postseason, but you play these regular season games, then it gets all the more complicated, um, especially if you're now suddenly, you know, splitting revenue. Yeah, and I think that's part of why the owners want to have that kind of certainty of, well, if we make less money and the postseason is impossible and that's like a large source of our revenue, then you make less money too. Um, and, and that's kind of a microcosm of this whole thing because the players are kind of pointing to this agreement that they signed in March back before, you know, we knew that uh, games would have to be played without fans uh, and, and maybe it would cause the season to be shortened, but you know, you'd still have that revenue from from gate receipts and, and concessions and parking. Uh, and so they're saying like, OK, we agreed to have it be prorated down, but we still want the same amount, uh, you know, otherwise that that we agreed to. Whereas the owners are saying things have changed since then. Those salaries that we're giving you were based on us getting gate receipts and, and concessions and parking revenue. Now that's gone. Things have changed. Uh, and so I don't think anyone wants to be on the hook for guaranteeing the other side money uh, and then having the rug pulled out from under them later on after they've kind of made this guarantee or quasi guarantee uh, and and having to lose money as a result. They're both paranoid because they don't trust each other. Well, right. And I will say even even then, even in March, when when they came to that agreement, it was already being discussed that they might have to play without fans. Like, I find that argument from the owners a little bit like trying to revise history a little bit. We did have an idea then that that might happen. Um, But I I think you're right, Neil, like there's this, there is an underlying lack of trust here and for kind of good reason. I mean, this thing about this $4 billion in revenue, we, we think that's crap, right? We don't think that that's true, but that's how the owner's present this kind of all the time. And we don't really know what is in their books and we never do. And we don't know how they're allocating revenue. We, I mean, most teams have stakes in their, their regional networks that have the TV rights. So there's this, like this idea that if the teams owe money back to 
those networks, they're kind of paying themselves. I mean, there's, but there are all these different ways to split this money. And you don't believe that, that teams are really in such dire straits. It's, it'd be, it's very hard to believe that as someone with no stake in the game, except as a fan. I mean, there was an, an agent who, who brought up the fact that, you know, the Royals were just purchased for, you know, a billion dollars. Like people are really wanting to get into this. If they're going to lose money, they would be willing to spend a billion dollars on a baseball team that won't make any money. No, of course not. I mean, that just defies belief. And also, I mean, I do think it's a little bit funny where it's like, if the players believe that the owners are lying about how much money they're they're going to lose, uh, which we think there's reason to believe that, then you by definition believe they're going to make more money, you know, kind of the losses will be less, or maybe they'll even break even on that. So then shouldn't you be more inclined to accept a revenue sharing deal if you think that they're lying about like if if you can't hold those two thoughts in your head at once that they're trying to screw us by tying us to revenue in a year in which they're losing. But we also don't believe they're losing. You know, it's sort of like you can't. It's a little self-contradictory, right? Well, right. But is that sort of the the problem? There are a lot of ways to hide revenue. I mean, you know, yeah. are if there are they. I think that if the players trusted the owners to actually be like telling, reporting all of the revenue, it would be a different thing. Yeah. And we knew this about baseball, I think, at the beginning of of this, that they were going to have this tricky financial component by not being at least on the same boat um, in terms of revenue. Whereas you see like in the NHL and the NBA, these teams, you know, they they both owner and player are aligned in the fact that they want to get back to work so that they can make money. And you don't have to draw this distinction between where that money's going and and how much you're getting paid because, you know, because of the financial structure of the league. So I think it was always a challenge for baseball. And I think it's a challenge that's unique to baseball. Um, And I'm with you. I, I, I think it's, you know, we've seen how long it is to negotiate these CBAs and how disruptive it can be and to do it on this cram timeline. And just overhaul um, the financials of the whole league and expect to do it and then expect to have a plan to get out of it. What, go back to normal and that kind of thing? I mean, that's, that, that is, that's problematic. Yeah. All right. So this meeting is happen- happening this afternoon. So this may all be moot by the time this podcast airs. But what do you guys think is going to happen with this season? Is it going to well, happen? I already, I already made my prediction. I think it's going to happen. <laughs> okay. You think it's going to happen, Jeff? I'm actually more dubious of just whether July 1st or July is too aggressive um, in terms of COVID and in terms of getting this done. I I do think there will be baseball in some form. Um, I'm just not, I'm a little skeptical that it'll be that quick. I I want, I want baseball back so badly that I sort of am afraid that it won't. I think maybe that my, my fear is, uh, is guiding me there, but I do really worry that they won't be able to to reach an agreement and there'll just be no baseball. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong, but I guess we'll see. We'll know more this afternoon. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good spot to leave this. Now for a word from this week's sponsor, Allbirds. There's a lot going on right now, but that just makes it all the more important to own what we can control and try our best to give back to others. Our friends at Allbirds are doing that through their commitment to leave the planet in better shape than they found it. That's why their newest shoe, the Tree Dasher, is a truly sustainable running shoe. 
It's built for performance with a low environmental impact. So no matter who crosses the finish line first, we all win. The Dasher is made from natural materials engineered to perform, and its carbon footprint is printed right on the shoe so you know the impact it has on the planet. I'm really enjoying my pair, which have put a spring in my step, partly because that's what they're designed to do, but also because they're just light and comfy and super fun to wear. With the new Allbirds Tree Dasher, feel confident knowing that you can run hard and tread lightly on the planet. Find your pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. On Sunday, the match Champions for Charity, quite the name, a charity golf event, raised $20 million for causes related to the fight against COVID-19. Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning defeated Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady at Tiger's home course, the Medalist Golf Club in Florida. We wanted to talk about the match, partially because it was a fun, bright spot in the midst of everything going on. But it also brought up something interesting that we looked at a few weeks ago after polling told us a little more about who wants sports to return and when. So first, let's talk about the match itself. What did you guys think of it? I thought it was fun. I thought it was I great. It. <laughs> I actually, uh, I, I I think it was a huge success. And I think a couple factors were at work. Not, I actually think it was a success regardless. I think this would have been a a, a very popular event in any time, not when there's no sports, because I think it was, it did a lot of things right. I think you saw these two legendary quarterbacks really at their most vulnerable. I've ever seen either one of these guys. I mean, they were (laughs) legitimately nervous. Yeah. And while, um, you know, I think Brady more so than Peyton, who's Brady clearly is not as good of a golfer and, and probably, you know, Peyton's retired. So I think he has a little more time out there. So let's give Brady a little bit of a pass here. Um, legitimately nervous and struggling. And there was this like every man. They were playing in many ways the way most people are closer to the way most people play golf. Where when they were lining up for a shot, I was like, there's a legit chance, you know, Tom could top this and not clear the uh, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, the next tee box. And that made it really exciting. And I think actually golf, you get sucked into this thing where every shot is amazing and it gets a little boring. You know, it's I've, I've gone back to this idea when I'm, we've talked about college basketball, why I like college basketball more than NBA, because the NBA players are just too good at basketball and seeing guys miss free throws and miss threes is actually makes it more compelling. So I think you had some of that at play, uh, never mind the fact who was doing it. And But I also think having these guys mic'd up was just fun. And oh, yeah. in the terrible, terrible conditions made it all the better. <laughs> I know, it was fun to see them soaking wet. Tom Brady split his pants. like That like was this, so funny. <laughs> yeah, like this was a true round of golf that like any of us could have had, except like, Tiger hitting every fairway and being, you know, Tiger, tiger. player. Amazing. Tiger looked great. He played, so <laughs> he played amazing. I know. <laughs> um, but then, but then you saw Brady in the second half of it, the back nine, which was when they went into the alternate shot. I think it got even more entertaining. And you could tell, like they were relaxed. Brady was playing a million times better than he was in the front nine. It was a mess. Um, but that's also relatable, you know. I mean, it's not relatable. I've never played with you know, millions upon millions of people watching. Um, You haven't? But generally, (laughs) the first nine can be a little rough, and then you get a little, find your groove, and you get a little better. You get a little confident. 
at the first when they were like each when when Brady and Manning were like hitting it left and right and like into the bushes that was all like fantastic I loved that I loved that you could tell Brady was getting more and more frustrated and I absolutely loved Charles Barkley just giving them shit the whole way through was so much fun yeah, I feel like he was great Barkley as a commentator for every sporting event would help it, I think. Uh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Can we just have I know Justin Thomas wants to play golf, so he probably won't do this, but <laughs> I would be very content with Justin Thomas and Charles Barkley doing any golf events. They were great. Yeah, they were really fun. I also I really liked the like the sort of coaching you saw on the course. It was interesting to hear it particularly with Phil giving advice and like talking about where to be aiming and all that kind of stuff was really interesting. Cause you, you get an insight into their thought process mm-hmm. as players when they're coaching these, these quarterbacks, which was, was really fun. And just the trash talking, like I didn't miss a gallery at all. I would much rather have, I would much rather hear what the golfers are saying, even in just like a normal yeah golf event um than hear a crowd i thought that was fantastic yeah it really made me want to hear what the caddy and player conversations were in like a normal tournament and maybe some of it also is like we didn't miss the gallery because they're always trying to kind of quiet them down anyway you know right. it's different golf is fundamentally different from other sports where the crowd actually plays like a huge role but still definitely didn't miss hearing some guy say get in the hole on the like, <laughs> tee shot <laughs> right yeah absolutely yeah and like and also the pressure was not on tiger and phil like it is in a normal tournament i mean they even though even tiger was i mean he was pretty he didn't say a ton during the whole match but what he did say was funny he was pretty um, funny yeah i liked yeah. uh you know he's uh, when he turned to the camera and he's like this is what i have to deal with every time i play with phil <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Phil, <laughs> it was, really Phil was in rare form. Phil I mean, was, was in top form for sure. <laughs> he was hamming it up. Absolutely, yeah. I so this it turned out that this was the most watched cable golf event ever, with an average of five point eight million viewers. So as we've talked about on the show before, golf has some natural advantages when it comes to starting back up again. But also, the audience for golf might be more eager to have it back on their TVs. The poll we ran with Ipsos a few weeks ago explored some of the demographics of the people most eager to see sports return. Neil, can you explain what that poll saw? Sure. So one of the questions that we asked or series of questions was about how uh, how soon should each of these major sports, and we asked about basketball, baseball, football, hockey, golf, and NASCAR, I think were the, the ones that we asked about. And so um, the the questions that were most politically polarizing because we also had the party ID for each of the people that responded were these ones about basically like Republicans had the largest split where they thought NASCAR and golf should return immediately. 24% of Republicans said that and only 2% of Democrats said that NASCAR should restart immediately. And 3% of Democrats said golf should restart immediately. That was the largest partisan split of any question in our entire data set. And then if you start looking down a little bit further down the list, the ones that we're asking about whether or not it should start after only after a vaccine is available, 
those ones heavily lean Democrat in most cases, but the ones uh, that were most sort of adamant were football, hockey, and NASCAR. NASCAR was the third one on the list, and then soccer, and then golf. So you had this element of, especially when it came to Republicans wanting to restart sports, NASCAR and golf were the ones that they were the most... Um, enthusiastic about coming back immediately. And it's probably not a coincidence that NASCAR and golf both had major events this weekend, you know, within what, two weeks of us asking that question in the poll, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, NASCAR is is totally up and running again, obviously with no fans and and with a few other changes, but but they seem to be, you know, taking off and, and doing well. And now the PGA Tour is is set to resume fully in just two weeks on June 11th. I can't, that's only, that's two weeks from Thursday, which is kind of nuts to me. Um, but with these two events now that golf has had, it seems like they can make this work and it, it won't be too big of a problem. So I guess my question is, is the return of these two sports of golf and NASCAR is that a question of partisanship or is it more just the physical realities of the sports? I think it's a little of both, right? I actually, I, th- I think it's more the latter, to be honest. I, I think that happens to be the way the sort of partisan nature of, of sports fans lies. But in this case, like golf is having a little bit of a, a moment here because it, just look at it. I mean, this goes down to the youth level. It's the only sport where you... <laughs> naturally are are pretty far apart from whoever you're playing with and you're also outside and you're not sharing equipment which is a big one you're not you don't have you're not first of all your bodies aren't wrestling each other to the ground that's (laughs) a simple one but that would be an interesting twist for golf (laughs) yeah you don't pick up anyone else's balls or clubs you know you're not sharing any sort of you know germ transfer or anything like that so i do think it is kind of in many ways the perfect sport for this time and i think we're seeing that and i think we're probably seeing that on a participation level too yeah, and I guess if you look at NASCAR uh, as the other part of that equation, they're inside of cars for the entirety of the race. And yeah, there are like crew, you know, teams that that you have to interact with before the race, and they're with each other during the race. So they're they have to be, you know, they have to wear masks and they have to kind of keep their distance when they're in the pits and things like that. But for the actual athletes. They basically are all alone, just like a golfer out on a course. They're alone in the car, kind of insulated from the other people that they're competing against. Yeah, these two sports are are clearly the ideal ones to to have back with, you know, in the circumstances that we have now. I do wonder, though, if there are implications of having a fan base that's more eager for a sport to come back, whether that has to do with politics or other things. Can, a, can fan pressure influence a league? Maybe. Uh, you know, I think that there uh, there's a possibility of that for the reasons that you mentioned, that uh, it does seem to skew a little bit more toward, you know, people that would want to come back sooner anyway. Uh, and it, it also, I think baseball, we've talked about it as being a sport that is probably more suited to social distancing than, say, football or even hockey or even basketball in yeah. the sense that a lot of the time you are away from the other players. Uh, and they have these guidelines as part of the guidelines that they um, promoted, uh, the MLB, you know, return to play plan. They had these things about how, like, 
the you know no no high fives no fist bumps um and you have to retreat from the runner when you're uh, uh as a fielder between pitches or something like that there's all these kind of weird things that i don't know what that's going to look like but um you only have to put in a few of those uh but for the most part the players are pretty well spaced out so that yeah. could play a role too it's another it's like on that spectrum with with golf and nascar yeah. I, I think also i mean this this super simple point that individuals versus teams is always going to be a lot easier i think this is this bodes well for tennis you know playing some of these events without fans it's going to be a lot closer to golf and and nascar you don't have to deal with these teams and these unions and just a higher volume of players um and organization in terms of testing and and quarantine and all this stuff it's a lot i mean also you know if one player chooses not to play you know, the PGA championship this year, then fine, you know, it'll go on, you know, you can have that choice. You don't need everyone to opt in, which is just a logistical nightmare for these, you know, big leagues with a lot of players. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting point that like the things that we are okay to do ourselves, the athletic events or life events, like driving a car, we can still do that. Um, But like, we can play golf, we can play tennis. Um, and so that does make more sense that those are the things that would be back sooner. And tennis is back in limited amounts too. There have been a couple of, of small, you know, tournaments that aren't, you know, tour based, but just people playing, which makes sense. You could just go out and play and someone could put it on camera, you know? Yeah. The only thing there, I guess they had just have to replace the balls after they're, you know, touched a certain number of times or by different players or something. But yeah, tennis is great because you're not even interacting with the ball with your hand. You you have this apparatus that you're holding on to, to hit it with. Also, another aspect of the, this match that was fun was just seeing these guys do all the things that the caddies normally do, especially in the weather where they're constantly like toweling down their clubs and all this stuff. Um, and even just driving the carts was I loved seeing them drive the cart. I thought that was so fun where they had the camera fixed on it. Yeah. So with tennis, get rid of the ball boys, you know, retrieve (laughs) your own own ball, Roger. Yeah. You know, Nadal, you no longer get that guy throwing you the towel in between each shot. So, you know, deal with it. It would take him even longer it to would, serve. It would, it, would be, it would be longer than your um your uh Stratocast baseball yeah. <laughs> showdown. Yeah. All right. To wrap this up, back with golf, we've now had two episodes of the match between Tiger and Phil for the inevitable the match part three. Who should they take on as celebrity partners? They clearly need celebrity partners for it to be more fun. Who should they? Who should they have? Trump and Obama. Just kidding. That would get some ratings. <laughs> I think, I think they could go. There's a million. I mean, look, all these athletes play golf to some degree. Some are obviously better than others. I mean, I think an obvious one would be Steph Curry. He's a great golfer. They say he's scratch or even a little bit below scratch. In fact, I know he might be too good. I mean, Jordan. The trash talking and the betting would be amazing. Well, would betting be allowed outside of the framework of the, uh, you know, I know they introduced some like challenges, you know, along the, the way, but are we ready for Jordan's level of challenge? I mean, I think we'd have to allow it's for charity. It's for charity, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'd have to like donate any of their bets, maybe. But you could get, we all, we all love the clip 
um, from Top Golf of, of Mike Trout seemingly driving the ball 500 yards. So put Trout out there too. I mean, there's 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 active athletes who would probably be great candidates for this. Well, and I guess the question is, do you want someone who is better than Peyton and Tom were, or <laughs> like is that the level that's like the sweet spot? Because I kind of felt like that was the the sweet spot for it's like they're they're clearly not great golfers. They're passable golfers uh, and they're going to struggle sometimes. But you're with these other two legendary golfers. uh, So it kind of evens out and you have that like range of what could happen on shots where you still see great shots get made mostly by Tiger. And then you also see really bad shots mostly by Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the level you want because you wouldn't want like me out there like struggling <laughs> to hit the ball more than you know 100 yards. No one wants to see that. Literally, no one. Um, but you have to. You won't. You don't want it too good because you want there to be some like, ooh, are they going to have to take Tiger's tee shot and like maybe struggle with Peyton on the second shot? You you want a little bit of that uncertainty. You don't want just like two great golfers like just trading shots. That's not that much fun. <laughs> So, yeah, I think in that range, the like good, but not great. (laughs) Okay, that's a great spot to leave this discussion. We'll take a break and then we'll be back with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Sure. So uh, I, is this going to be the last podcast that we mentioned, The Last Dance? Uh, probably. Maybe, okay, probably not. But, <laughs> uh, you know, in honor of The Last Dance, uh, which really brought the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James goat debate into, I think, the the most crystallized form yet. Uh, because we've all remembered now that, oh yeah, Michael Jordan was really good. Uh, and that LeBron guy, he's also good. <laughs> uh, so I kind of had this idea where, uh, what if we could have them reverse places throughout their careers? So we took LeBron and we put him on Jordan's teams. And then we also took Jordan and put him on LeBron's teams. Now this is a crazy hypothetical that you'd never, you know, how would you even do that? Well, as it turns out, there's this game. Uh, it's a, it's a really good online browser based basketball management simulation game called basketball GM. This is really I, an insight into your, uh, into your hobbies. The show is yeah. with showdown and basketball GM. Yeah, I've talked a lot of, a lot about sports games recently between that and my rant about the state of uh, AAA sports video games. But <laughs> this basketball GM game is really good, uh, and uh, I, it's been growing in popularity, but basically it allows you to uh, set up a roster and then play uh, at, you know infinite number of seasons, and there's trades, and there's free agency, and there's all kinds of things. You can set your lineup and everything. Uh, but the guy who uh, created it is a guy named Jerry. Jeremy Chef, he's a programmer, and uh, I know him on Twitter. And uh, I thought of him when I was kind of had this idea, and I asked him if he could do this. And so, what he ended up doing was he took every age at which LeBron and Michael Jordan both played, and he set up a hundred simulations uh, for each of those seasons with Jordan on James's team 
and another 100 with James on Jordan's team, uh, which gave us 100 different versions of all 13 of those seasons, spanning from age 22 through 35, excluding age 31 because Jordan played baseball that year. <laughs> uh, and then as a baseline, he also ran 100 simulations with them on their actual team. So we can kind of get a control to to see you know how their numbers change. So in terms of stats, first of all, when you take Jordan and you put him on LeBron's teams, he scores 2.8 fewer points per game. And his stats are kind of down across the board if you look at player efficiency rating, win shares per 48, things like that. Whereas if you put LeBron on Jordan's teams, he actually gains points per game. He gains 3.4 points per game and his efficiency numbers are uh, are higher. But what we all want to know is about how it changes the team level outcomes, like how often they make the playoffs, how often they made the finals, how many rings they win. So if you kind of compare the two and you look at their uh, the differences between the actual career path that they had and the, the uh, championships they would win on another team, you get that if you took uh, Jordan and put him on LeBron's teams, LeBron's teams would make the finals uh, a little bit less than one fewer time. So 0.9 times fewer. And then they would win about a half championship fewer. LeBron's teams would. Uh, whereas if you took LeBron and put him on Jordan's teams, those teams would make the finals 0.9 more times and they would win about an extra half championship. Now, that doesn't mean that they would win six and a half championships if you took uh, LeBron and put him on the Bulls, because the the really interesting thing of all this is that uh, basically both players, when you simulate out their careers a hundred times, both of them lose championships and and finals appearances compared to what they actually had in real life. So if if you're just running the, uh, the simulations with LeBron on his own teams, he makes the finals only 2.4 times over the course of his career, and he wins 1.1 championships. He's made the finals nine times in in reality uh, and, and won three championships. Uh, and then with Jordan, he only makes the finals about three times if you run out his uh, career 100 times, and he wins 1.8 championships as compared with six and six. The, if you took Jordan and replayed his career a hundred times, the odds, there was a 97% chance that he would go to at least one NBA finals and an 87% chance that he would win at least one championship. But the odds of him winning six NBA championships were only 1%. So the real Michael Jordan basically hit on the one in 100, the 99th percentile or 100th percentile career outcome for him in in terms of uh, championships won. And it's similar for for LeBron. Uh, You In none of the 100 career simulations that Jeremy ran out for me, did LeBron make nine finals? Uh, he, the, he made six finals 1% of the time. Uh, and then he won three championships, his actual total only 7% of the time. But I just find it fascinating that both players basically maxed out their, their potential in terms of, of winning championships. And some of that probably speaks also to the nature of the simulation that there's the simulation is based on player ratings that come from the stats at, at basketballreference.com. Uh, and they have a really clever way of coming up with like, how do you come up with LeBron's three point shooting rating for 2007 based on his stats? And they kind of reverse engineered that, uh, and then put them into the game. But, uh, at the same time, there's probably something that's being missed about the synergy between great players and also just 
how much effect one great player can have that transcends, you know, the way we can kind of quantify uh, uh, what it does to a team that would cause somebody like bo- both LeBron and Jordan to win a lot more championships uh, or make the finals more in reality than they would in a simulation, even as like, you know, the maximum potential of the simulation. So I found it fascinating and I would encourage everybody to go out and check out basketball GM and just play a bunch of seasons and, and uh, see where that gets you. <laughs> I think that's so interesting, particularly in, well, in both of their cases, but in LeBron's case, like there's a little bit of almost disappointment that he's only won three, right? I mean, and, and making nine finals is crazy good, like crazy good, but they were almost, there were so many of them felt like foregone conclusions. Like you just assume that LeBron's team was going to run through the East and just be in the finals. And then, then we'd see what happened then. But that's really very, it was, it was unlikely for that to happen that way. And I think it's important to remember that there's so much, the power of narrative in the NBA really does shape people's careers more so than just like, that was super unlikely to have happened. That should make us remember that LeBron is a transcendent player. Yeah, especially when you look at some of the years that LeBron, uh, some of the teams that he took to the finals, like the 2018 Cavs, they didn't make the finals in any of the 100, uh, you know, kind of re-simulations. You look at that kind of motley crew that he had with J.R. Smith and, and some of these guys. And I think in retrospect, looking back and seeing that he brought that team to the finals is going to be one of the biggest accomplishments. I mean, it goes up there with winning the championship for the 2016 team, which also had, you know, a very low probability of happening. But the, the, the models in general tend to spread the wealth more, it seems. Like, for instance, if, the, if you were to do a similar exercise with the NFL, there would never be a model that would predict Brady and Belichick to make nine Super Bowls and win six of them. I mean, it, it's just too extreme almost for that. So it's something to factor in there. But it it is interesting um, how we do have this perception of LeBron as an underachiever for whatever reason. Um, possibly, actually, I think it's probably baked into the super teams, whereas like that first Heat team everyone was shocked that they didn't immediately, you know, beat the Mavs and they lost that one. And I think that's, and that's the one they probably should have won. I mean, if you go back and look at it, that's the only one where they were favored going into the finals and didn't actually win because he's been an underdog in, I think all but two of the finals he's gone into and he's won uh, three times, but two of those wins were as underdogs. uh, Whereas the, the one that he lost as a favorite and, and, played pretty you know mediocre by his standards in was 2011 that's the only one that you'd really take back i think if you had it to do over again and then the uh, one where Irving and Kyrie and um and love were both out and he really had to do it all alone i think was viewed as he got a free pass on that one <laughs> yeah but the jordan thing is sort of funny in retrospect especially after having you know watched the last dance but at the time back in both 97 and 98 I remember there was never a doubt in my mind back then that, of course, the Bulls were going to win. And the Jazz were so good, like, especially, like, I know that more now than I did at the time. I just, like, always assumed that the Bulls were going to win those. That was pretty unlikely that they would, that Jordan would win his fifth and sixth titles there. And we, I should remember that instead of just, like, 
there was just a foregone conclusion because he was Michael Jordan and the Bulls were the best team ever. Like, obviously, <laughs> that's not they still had to do the work of actually winning, which um, was pretty impressive as we yeah. look back on it. And and credit. I mean, obviously, that's why Jordan is regarded as such a legend now is like when you look at the the potential turning points. And maybe that's like one of the big takeaways from the from the last dance was that uh, just about in terms of Jordan's actual on-court career is there were two moments in, in the 97 and 98 finals where things really could have hinged either way. Uh, if, if Jordan comes out in that flu game and plays poorly in the jazz, I'm sorry, win that, I'm sorry, oh, you sorry the, pizza the poison game? pizza yeah. game, right? <laughs> that was pizza. That was pizza gate before there was pizza gate. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, that uh, if Jordan doesn't play well in that game, they probably don't win that series or they're probably more likely to lose that series than not uh if they lose that game and then of course if he doesn't make those plays at the end of game six and they have to actually kind of play a game seven with Scottie Pippen's back messed up and kind of yeah. running on fumes in 98 they would not have been favored to win I think in game seven uh on the road against Utah so you know we're talking about big plays that Jordan made that secured that 1.9 surplus of, of championships over expected. It's, it's a good point, Sarah, though. And I think if you, you had to sort of be watching basketball at the time to remember that how much in the moment it, it felt like a foregone conclusion, unlike really, you know, as good as the Patriots were, it, it always felt possible, especially, you know, after the, you know, losing the Giants in Arizona and that the crazy upset, anything felt possible, you know, because it's one game. Whereas in with the Bulls, you know, I remember in 1993 being a kid and the Knicks were up uh, two games to O, and I was like, is this actually happening? Is this possible? Can the Knicks beat them? Oh, wait, no, they can't. They lost. <laughs> They're the Knicks. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, there were other things going on there, too, besides just Jordan's greatness. <laughs> the Knicks being the Knicks, always. And we didn't know what uh, back then what we knew about the Knicks, so. Okay, I think that will do it for this rabbit hole and this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It will help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.